This is Greg Trout, and I'm here with David E. Williams. We are recording this interview at his home in Fishtown on April 6, 2015. This is part of Loud Fast Philly. Hello, David. Hi, Thanks Greg. How are you? Good nice evening. To see you David and I have known one another for at least a decade, so we have a already have a rapport for conversation tonight, so yes. this ought to be good. Although we've not conversed in quite some time. We haven't, so it'll be a combination of catching up and 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 learning about some stuff for the listener. Um, I wanted to start out with a quote that I read about you oh, good. in an interview that where you were described as a by Michael Moynihan as a scald overdosed on ergot. Yes. Um, what do you think about that? Well, Michael, of course, is always uh, is immersed in uh, Nordic uh, imagery and scholarship and history. Indeed, he is. So, what he meant by that is probably best asked of him. However, sure, you know, sure. the scalds were. Well, I'm going to sound probably really stupid trying to explain what a scald is, no, but no, they no. were poets, storytellers, mm-hmm. in. Uh, Das Oldenzeit, yes, <laughs> and uh, I believe uh, they ingested ergot, which, which, which is hallucinogenic um, fungus, mm-hmm. and it uh, helped bring them visions, which uh, they were more troubadour-like storytellers. Uh, I believe also the berserker warriors used to take ergot too before going into battle. When I Wikipedia. Ergot. Most of the words in that sentence. Yes, uh, that's berserkers were named in the same sentence as scalds. Yes, so I mean, you know, it was kind of. I thought it was a very interesting uh, way to describe you and your art, um, as I was searching for. Considering that it is, uh, without too much admission up front, it is very not drug influenced mm-hmm. at all. So I mean, I think it was a clever quote. Uh, Slightly ironic. Slightly ironic, slightly probably appealing to the magazine in which he was interviewing me for. It was Heathen something. Uh, right? It was uh, probably The Fifth Path, maybe? Maybe. I, I Actually, I believe I read it in an excerpt somewhere. You may have read that, like, on my website. Uh, <laughs> so. so, now, to start at the beginning, this is something I, I don't know about you. Are you originally from Philadelphia? No, uh, I grew up uh, in the Poconos in a small slate mining town named Pinarjo, which wasn't in the resort area of the Poconos. It was sort of on the line between the Lehigh Valley and the Pocono Mountains. Um, it was a slate mining town founded by the Welsh. Uh, a lot of the Italians worked in the slate mines. As it turns out, my father is half Italian and half Welsh. Welsh being the Williams, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was growing up, the mines were closed, and they were replaced primarily with a lot of garment factories that were owned by Italians. Hmm. So uh, that's where I grew up. A small town of about three thousand people. Okay. Uh, up northeast Pennsylvania. Sure. Um, how long? How long were you there? Did you, you grew up there? I grew up there, uh, so I was there f- up to age 18 and went out to Penn State for four years. That's where you went to school? I went to Penn State, so uh, University Park State College. 
What did you study there? I majored in English. Okay. Something called the English Writing Option. So it was sort of, uh, you know, one of those uh, majors where you couldn't really get a job with it, but they threw that writing option thing on it to give you the illusion that perhaps you might write for other things. You, you need that illusion <laughs> yes, to, yes. to propel you to the end. Well, I mean, yeah. we all sort of felt like we were going someplace a lot more quickly than the literature majors, but... So I was out there four years and then actually moved back to Penarjo for a year and back at the State College for two years and came to Philadelphia in 1989. 89, okay. Yes. I came three years later. Oh, okay. 92. Very true. Um, Now, did you display musical talent your entire life? Were you musical as a child? Uh, I started taking piano lessons when I was 10 years old, fourth grade. Um, I guess that might be considered classically trained, but I was just talking about it recently where it was just kind of things that if you were middle class in that small town back then, um, you know, the kids had music lessons, they played sports. Um, My sister took piano. My mom was actually uh, a very good pianist growing up. Uh, She was slated to go to university to study, but then uh, she married and had kids, and we were always blamed for her not <laughs> becoming a... I understand. <laughs> but, um, so I, you know, and although I started taking lessons in at 10, it wasn't really until I got to high school and discovered rock and roll music that I started taking it seriously, and I got to the point where I was practicing about three hours a day. Now, when you when you got to high school and discovered rock and roll music, what do you mean by that? So, I mean, it was uh, probably what most people would call classic rock today. I think uh, I was really into the Beatles, um, the Who, the Doors, really into Pink Floyd, and uh, it's almost embarrassing because they've never been quite revived among sort of hipster culture was uh, Supertramp. It's probably a lot of those other bands were later embraced by Super, cool people. But Supertramp were known for being like astonishingly good musicians, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there was a lot of prog rock interest in what I sure. was liking at the time. There was not really a lot of exposure to what you might think of as underground music. Um... I discovered Joy Division, actually, uh, in 1980 on my own without really caring for or liking any other punk or post-rock punk kind of music. Mm -hmm. Um, I read a review of the um, Closer album in the Allentown Morning Call by this fellow named Len Rigi, and it was referred to as blood-stained art, and he had just died, I guess, a year or so ago, and it was being released in America, and it was, uh, so that was sort of the first um, rock music outside of classic rock that I got into, Mm -hmm. which was, it's kind of, uh, I think, unusual, because I think a lot of people might start with punk music before they go into, like, Well, I guess it uh, depends on where you are, I guess, chronologically in life. Yeah, I mean... Where you're located. Right. You know, um, those influences you just spoke of, the classic rock ones, do you... Do you see them speaking to the music you began making and make today? 
Well, yeah, I mean, I am a keyboardist, so, uh, you know, those beautiful piano songs and mm -hmm. even Super Tramp. Um, I write based around the keyboard, usually, whether that's a straightforward piano and fake strings type song sure. or even going into the noisier part of my songbook, as it were, it's, it's, it's still a guy behind a keyboard to some degree. Do you play anything other than the piano? Uh, I've written on guitar. I have a guitar and I'll futz about with it. Um, and I'll play what sound like weird chords, but I, I guess I could not honestly say that I play guitar. When I've written those songs, I've always had to assign it to another guitar player to play for recordings and things. Gotcha. Right, so you came to Philly in 89? Yes. Okay. And okay, and then you uh, took lessons as a child, and then in high school you listened to classic rock. And then did you continue with your music when you were in school at Penn State? Yeah, I, uh, I, I actually continued. Although I was an English major, I did, have, uh, did take piano lessons, like a one credit for a couple of years. Uh, did not do as well as I had done in high school. I was in my first real cover band. Which, uh, in the middle 80s, was uh, we were playing, like, new wave covers, along with classic rock covers. Uh, you know, we'd play Van Halen's Jump. Uh, the big moment of the night for me would be when we did Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's Lucky Man. I'll bet. And I got to do the uh, yeah. uh, Keith Emerson solo on my Radio Shack Moog. Uh, Radio Shack fantastic. put out a Moog in the early 80s, which I still have. Did they call it a Moog? Um, they, it was branded, uh, it was called the, I don't know the exact number, what, it was called the Concert Mate, and it had Realistic on the back of it, uh -huh. but it, it did say Moog on there somewhere, and he did design it for them. Oh, cool. It was kind of like a mini, 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 mini Moog, like, okay. uh, there were not a lot of attributes to it, but I mean, um, like, a, like a starter Moog. Yeah, for making air, we, you know, we did, uh, Back in the USSR, so I could make the airline noise with it, <laughs> and uh, ride. We did Riders on the Storm, so I had wind. Did the rain and wind. We yeah. did a lot of car songs, so like a lot of those cool. old seventies uh, and eighties analog synth songs you could play on it. What was the name of this cover band? <laughs> the band was called Speculation, which <laughs> you got me. It sure was. <laughs> yes, uh, and there were sort of like. You know, more sophisticated people, and, and then, like, a lot less sophisticated people, and they were... So, you know, it'd be... Everybody got to pick two songs, and I never picked any. Because hmm. at the time, I was not really into any of that music. I was really starting to get into, like, Joy Division Man, and yeah. Public Image Limited, yeah. and things like that. Tangerine Dream. So, you know, I couldn't really go to the band and say, let's cover Phaedra. Sure. For well, the next 20 minutes. 23 minutes, yeah. But there definitely <laughs> was, like, opposing camps of, like... The guy who wanted to play Talking Heads and The Fix and <laughs> the, the guys fix. who wanted to play like 38 Special. It was it was really like, it was a crazy varied set list and it was a cover band. So it was a lot more work than being in a lot of these bands where you play original music because you had three sets a night, mm -hmm. like maybe hour long sets with 10, 15 minute break. Um, but that probably made you so much more proficient as a keyboardist. Um working so hard and often what was really good about it was as far i mean you know obviously it 
it didn't physically make me a better keyboardist because I did have the classical piano kind of lessons, but it, it I was learning everything by ear. So that was very helpful. And you kind of got to see how songs were put together in a really traditional manner. And, and it was interesting when I started to be able to predict, oh, the chorus is obviously going to go there. Right, right, um, right. Because, you know, even beyond the one four five sort of basic blues progression like a lot of songs just i don't know a lot of the math or whatever behind it but they they all kind of lead in the same direction sometimes one other quick funny story about the the realistic moog like you know there's a big revival in analog electronic synthesizers and things and that's kind of thought as like a neat thing to own but back then uh the guys in the cover band didn't want the audience or other musicians to know I was playing a Radio Shack keyboard. So realistic on the back of the keyboard was covered with a piece of gray um, <laughs> duct tape. Wow. And I could show you the keyboard today. And uh, the duct tape is off. I have the realistic there, but you can still see kind of the residue of where the duct tape was. <laughs> That's funny. Covering up the realistic covering on the up back the of it. Verboten realistic name. Yes. Wow, that's funny. So, um, when did you start writing your own music, writing original stuff? I would say in 1980 or so, uh, or maybe a little, maybe a year earlier. I was writing a lot. Started writing songs at home that were sort of like a lot like the songs in the piano books, but like a lot simpler. But like um, there was one called Creamed Corn, which. Then the Bubble Surfers, like 15 years later, had a weird song called Cream Corn, and I thought that was an yes, odd synergy. Yeah. But uh, I don't remember a lot of them. Then I, I joined my first band in high school, and that was interesting because it was not a cover band, and it, nor was it like punk influence, but it was definitely like five people who wanted to make um, their own songs. Um, they were these guys, they were really uh, religious Russian Orthodox kids. Uh, okay. It was me and the set of brothers and cousins. Huh. It was like the outsider. Were you recruited because you played the keyboard? I was recruited to play the keyboards. Uh, and um, then we got, uh, we got this really weird... But they were really like into Sabbath. <laughs> and black and and like scary music, I guess. Yeah. I mean, they weren't into Sabbath because they thought it was like. I guess they were aware of like some like double music connotations, but sure. like they liked the scariness of the sound, and they were also into a lot of prog bands and Rush and things. Um, that's my Tourette's, the uh, barking sounds you might hear on the tape. <laughs> Actually, it's uh, <laughs> we do have a third party in the room. It's being reasonably. Well behaved, I think. Very well behaved. Um, so that that band was called Lemon Schubert. Lemon Schubert. Yes, I it read was about it. My Lemon name. Uh, I picked uh, for it. Uh, Excellent name. We did a lot of stuff. We did a lot of stuff influenced by like Tangerine Dream and things. We tried doing some poppy, progressive rock, maybe in the Kansas vein. I remember we had a big, uh, our big moment when we had a Help Wanted ad in there and. Some really hot shot guy with like the torn jeans and 80s rock and roll look came over <coughs> and was actually a really good singer. Um, and then they had this weird thing where they 
would just want to jam and like sing stuff about their relatives. <laughs> and I sort of uh, like on some weird level was a lot more careerist than they were and like no, we should be working on these serious important songs, but they were probably having a lot more fun than I was. <laughs> By singing about their relatives, like were they They had like uh, they would like have a pretty like folk ballad that would just be like rattling off names of relatives like Dottie and Chucky and Timmy and Alex and Dottie and Chucky. And then they would also have like, you know, tell terrible stories that would just be about their relatives and things. Uh -huh. huh. I don't think I'm giving anything away if they somehow hear this tape someday. If they somehow hear this, I'd be very surprised. Well, we were talking about social media. I mean, yeah, that's I'm true. Facebook friends with at least two of them and the sister of another one. So oh, you never know. It's likely it could get into them in Schubert hands. Now, it seems like from what you just told me your your writing original stuff seems to correlate with the timeline of you finding the Joy Division record. Does that make sense to you or is that just a coincidence? Uh I mean I liked Joy Division a lot and still do and you know I'm one of the I'm in the church Joy Division. Yeah. Although I think like to be 51 and to sort of I think there's a problem with the, a lot of these people who are my age and are sort of obsessed with the artistic output, brilliant as it was, of a 22-year-old troubled individual. Um, yes. So, I mean, I don't yeah. have... I don't really share Ian Curtis's worldview like I may have at one point. Well, no. But no. Um, well, I still understand healthy. how brilliant and great it was. But... Um, I was just wondering if maybe that was maybe the the spark or I don't, I, I don't see it as such. Okay. No. What what um, did probably it... I mean uh, <laughs> probably Billy Joel and Supertramp more sure. so. Okay. And like uh, goofy prog music like King Crimson. No. I mean, if people think my lyrics are pretentious now or have ever been at a stage, it was. I, I would never let anyone see or hear anything that I was recording back then. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess in 82, there was a big leap because I um, bought a four-track recorder. Oh, okay. So a uh, cassette four-track recorder, and that's where I actually was able to be a solo artist, as it were, and start recording things on my own. And what was kind of... Not necessarily aesthetically an influence, but uh, Howard Jones was kind of an influence. I like the idea of these people. Like I, I was really into this idea that if you had a synthesizer and a drum machine, you could be all the instruments. Yeah. Um, so could, that that good, and that was that was really new and innovative at the time. Yeah, that kind of movement Exciting. in new wave was sort of more a practical inspiration maybe than stuff I liked to listen to. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, that kind of, uh, that technology allowed it to move. Because I also, at, at a point there, became very anti, like, rock and roll. Like, I, <laughs> I sort of saw myself as a classical composer or sure. something. Sure, sure. Um, and then at one point I even got very anti-musical. I wanted to 
one uh, like uh, some of the pseudo-erotica music like Bad Day Anyway is a perfect example of what I was going for where I just wanted this sort of very repetitive thing under horrible stories and I had this whole idea that it was supposed to sort of meant represent um, life trudging forward by the bodies like horrible things were happening to us well, in, our, in, your, in our immediate circumstances that the juggernaut of the world just kept moving forward and you certainly accomplished it with that oh, song. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> that, that song is, is truly terrifying. Which, um, my next question was, when were you first informed of what I'm going to call your aesthetic? Because you, you definitely have a worldview and a cast of characters. Well, I mean, were. if you go back to that record, like, like Bad Day Anyway is probably among the earliest of that sort of song. Because, uh, you know, like, there was a while there, like, 82, like, some of the stuff that no one's ever heard, where it was kind of, like, political music, sort of very John Lennon influence. Oh, okay. And a lot of sort of cliche, kind of anti-religious stuff. And then I, I well, maybe, some, maybe something that had to do with college, where I started reading more poetry and taking writing courses and things, and reading literature and most of it kind of depressing you know whether it be like Vonnegut or Bukowski or mm. Kafka or whatever none of it was very upbeat and I became I mean I only heard the term in later years applied to other people but I sort of became a miserable list mm. and <laughs> and um, uh, yeah I could see miserable list but there's such a a sense of humor. I mean, it's well, yeah, well, black, that's, that's but an important. It's, there's a sense of humor under there that, that kind of tempers the miserableism. Okay, well, I would answer that, and I would say that um, my earliest artistic influences were probably the earliest was probably something like Monty Python. I was wondering if Monty and I, Python yeah, was my dad there. and I would. My dad, uh, he's an interesting uh, fellow. I mean. Um, He's like in his 80s now, so I guess when he was raising me with my, with my mom, he was maybe in his 40s. And he was sort of like, you know, some guy in a small town who owned a small factory. He's Republican, Catholic. So he wasn't really a radical guy, but like when it came to like movies, comedy movies, you know, we saw all the Mel Brooks together. Um, Monty Python. <coughs> Animal House, like weird comedies from the 70s will show up on TV, like uh, there's a movie with uh, the in-laws or something. With I love the in-laws. Yeah, like my dad and I saw that in the theater together. Yeah, that's a great movie. <laughs> so, um, so definitely like funny movies. Well, the producers, um, uh, in a high, there was a high school talent contest in my English class where I did a I lip synced uh, Springtime Trailer. How'd that go? <laughs> it was fine. You yeah. could do that sort of thing back then. Yeah, actually. that's great. I, oh, God, I wish I could have seen that. <laughs> but, well, it, the comedy things that you mentioned, Monty Python, yeah. Mel Brooks, Animal House, at the time were also very much subversive outsider things. Right. Which I can see in your work now because most of the characters in your song, from the early stuff to even you know, the, um, the last record, the, the scaffold record are all outsiders and they're all people doing things 
outside the realm, outside the periphery of of society or watchful eyes, if it will? Yes. I mean, that's a bit of a generalization, but you have to start somewhere. I mean, it's yeah. not unreasonable to say that. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I. I don't mean it to be a generalization. I just. No. No. I. I didn't mean generalization has kind of a negative. Right. Tint shade to it, but. Um, Your music is definitely full of outsiders. Full of outsiders. Uh, sometimes we're pushed outside, maybe. Sure. Without intending to be outsiders. Sure. Um, they make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, your so your <laughs> earliest recordings that are that are available are. They start around 1989, and they're on the Pseudo Erotica record. That's when they came out, but Pseudo Erotica, it was, uh, I went into the studio in November 86. Okay. And something like Bad Day Anyway or My God and My Dog were probably written around 85. They're written around 85 and yeah. recorded thereabouts as well? Uh, record, well, demos were recorded thereabouts, but then um, I actually, Pseudo Erotica was recorded in a studio out in State College. Out in State College? So, yeah. And then when did you start, uh, begin to pre present these, this music to the world? Uh, I read in the liner notes that you had a tendency to, to mail unsolicited demos here and there. Yeah, well, Pseudo-Erotica came out, I guess, 88 or 89. I lose track because it was a long, tedious process uh, involving, I mean, it was uh, close to 30 years ago now, so I'm mm -hmm. not bad-mouthing a local company. But I had, <laughs> I had a lot of problems with disc makers doing vinyl in 1988. Ah. Um, so I don't know. They, they might be a great place. Now, actually, I've had CDs made there since then that have gone off fine. But um, So that one came out like in 88 or 89. And then I moved to Philly, uh, which is an interesting story to some degree because it sheds a light into the future a little bit. Jerome Deppi, who has played a lot of guitar with me, um, was going to buy a studio in Philadelphia, and uh, the engineer of Pseudo Erotica, Drew Raison, had played him or given him a copy of it, and he wanted the first full-length album to be recorded at the studio that he was buying to be uh, released by me. Oh. So I actually packed up from State College and my shitty job up there and came to Philly. How did he come to hear your music? Through who the through the engineer who had worked on Pseudo Erotica. Okay. Um, and I moved to Philly, and the, the attempts to buy the studio fell through, but Jerome and I started playing music together, and part of it was a little bit, um, you know, it's weird for someone who's had so little commercial success, <laughs> I always was kind of thinking, like, one day I'm going to be a professional musician, like, I... I really thought I was going to be a rock star. So, like, I, you know, uh, drone uh -huh. was, uh, I, I wanted guitar on the songs because this were, these were very unfriendly times for keyboard music, the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, very unfriendly times where, like, you know, intellectuals and knowledgeable people who should have known better... Mm -hmm. There's a, actually a world-famous author who said to an ex-girlfriend of mine, she gave him one of my demo tapes, and he was like a, a snooty New Yorker intellectual 
has a couple movies that were based on his books that you might recognize, but I don't need to go down that road. Gotcha. But, you know, this is sort of a, oh, his comment was, I just can't understand music without guitars in it. <laughs> Which, I mean, you know, everybody likes good sure. rock tune, but, but... It's not all there is to the world of music. Yeah, I think, you know, as much as a lot of the world's become narrow-minded in the last 30 years, I think people's attitudes toward music are kind of open up, but... Yeah, I would try to get Sue Erotica reviewed places, and it was just... People... It wasn't that they loved guitars so much, but they really hated electronic music. It seemed to me, at least. Because <laughs> it wasn't just mine. It was stuff I liked. Right. Also kind of got panned or ignored. Um, and, it, you know, and then, you know... It was you did get, re get it reviewed some places, didn't you? I did. Um... Yeah, there were some uh, good reviews. Uh, I mean, getting back to the Philly theme, I guess Frank Blank. Yeah, I remember. Used to write. He used to write for the City Paper. He wrote some nice stuff about me, and he was kind of a guitar rock and roll sort of guy. So that right. was kind of nice. That's cool. That I crossed over into. I think I may remember that time reading about you in Forced Exposure magazine. Do you remember that? I would be surprised because I sent those. I literally probably sent that magazine like eight copies really um, of Pseudo-Erotica, the vinyl, and kept waiting for it to be reviewed, uh, and it just never not. happened. And I, I was a pretty active self-promoter, if, <coughs> if not a good one. I, I would mail a lot of things out and do a lot of follow-up. And I had little postcards that would go out that would say, my opinion of David E. Williams is blank, and they could fill it out and send things back. That's a fantastic Some of those are pretty idea. good. Well, it was not that original. Like, I, I had read that in, like, a, a music marketing book or something really? that I bought somewhere. I, may I mean, it was very difficult to... Uh, this thing, you know, the, the, you know we, we talked about Facebook and it's sucking and social media is sucking, but, like, it was hard to get the word out back then. Yeah, that although is. there was a lot less music around to get the word out about, because that's the double-edged sword. It was a real endeavor to record something and release it. It's the double-edged sword of the internet. You know, it's easier to get your stuff out there, but it's easier to get your stuff out there. Yeah, there's just a glut of things out there that you, you kind of get lost in the shuffle sometimes. But um, so after after pseudo erotica. Was that when you sort of did a lot of collaborations? Not yet. Not yet? No. Uh, so, like, A House for the Dead and Porch for the Dying CD came out in 94, which is, like, five, six years later. Okay. So in that interim is where, you know, that period that you mentioned about sending out a lot of demo tapes and things. Uh -huh. And these weren't official releases, although they show up on Discogs and things. They were just like a tape you would send to a record label or a bar or... Uh-huh. Um, and they had different covers and sure. different selections of songs on each. But there was an attempt to make them somewhat professional looking too. So, um, collaborations, I'm not sure who you had in mind. A lot of them, a lot later, like... Okay, a lot later. Your, um, chronology is a little hard to follow at uh, times when I do the history, but, um... Oh, that's okay. So... Maybe I should write something for the website that's really concise. Now it's just kind of lists. Perhaps, yeah. 
so um, so there was the porch record you just mentioned. Yes. What came after that? I have forgotten how to love you. I've forgotten how to love you. Okay. Which was ninety six. That was ninety six. Um, that one, I was not able to locate anywhere to listen prior to this, so I apologize. It's it's hard to uh, find. Actually, House for the Dead and Porch for the Dying is really almost impossible to get on discards. I uh, knew somebody that had that years ago and oh, okay. didn't hear it. I I was first turned on to your music by a fellow whose uh, CD shelf consisted solely of your stuff, Lydia yeah. Lunch, Swans, wow. and Nurse with Wound. And I, th I think that might be it. Huh, it's probably somebody I know. <laughs> most likely, most likely. So I remember he had that record. So I do I remember us listening to it, but I, ha I have not heard it since. So I didn't have much prepared to ask you about that one. Um, the earliest one I, I have in my collection mm -hmm. is, besides the pseudo-erotica collection, is Hello Columbus. Oh, okay. Which is 99. I was listening to today walking down um, Fairmount Avenue. I've forgotten what a bombastic record that is. Yes. And enormously entertaining. Well, again, again I was trying to <laughs> follow market trends. That was supposed to be my... My Rammstein, Marilyn Manson, Nine Inch Nails type record. That was your most was, elaborate production at the time, it, right? It, it was, and maybe to this day still. I mean, it was, uh, it was a 48-track studio. Um, rented a string quartet. First time that I really like used a lot of live drums. Uh, Jerome, of course, was there with a live um, clarinet player, Ken Brune, which might seem a little out of place for... Something that was that kind of distorted and bombastic, but um, yeah, I mean that was supposed to sort of be. <laughs> that was another last. So that was another last attempt to like meet the world halfway and break through. Right. So I, I think uh, you know after that, uh, I, it might be fair to say that a lot of my music was freed from that desire or wish do you for feel better you, or worse. Do you feel you worked it out of your system or you, you had just decided you were just going to do it your way? and, and Well, let I mean, you know, there, there's still sound pretty, like, strange avant-garde records to some people's ears, but, like, yeah, I thought that that's what... <laughs> I thought all that stuff, like A House for the Dead and the Porch for the Dying, I Forgot I Love You, and Hello, Columbus, that was all... I was trying to make popular music. Mm -hmm. I wasn't selling out, and it was still like my lyrical vision, and it was frankly music that I liked. I mean, I guess it goes back to the '70s and like the Carpenters, and somewhere on the websites or in your research, maybe you came across Barry Manilow's Evil Twin. I have. So like, I I was really into this idea. I thought it was a little bit of a gimmick, but it did actually represent the music that I liked, which was sort of pleasant, for lack of a better word, with, like, these horrible lyrics that were also appealed to me on that level. Um, and there wasn't a lot of people really doing it at the time, I don't think. I mean, like, Nick Cave was sort of in that area, too, and 
But I think that style is kind of more popular now than it was back then. I mean, when people rediscovering Scott Walker and yeah, gotcha. stuff yeah. like that these days. Yeah. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. I, I do think that record was ahead of its time. Well, I mean, I wasn't claiming that, but... No, but ahead of but, its time as far as the, the resurgence of that sort of... Yeah, I can see that because it's not necessarily a qualitative thing to say, but it definitely... I. You know, that style with today's instruments and today's audience and me being that age, yeah, I wonder, yeah, things might have turned out differently there. But I guess, like, after that, so Hope Springs a Turtle is 2003, and I'd sort of been retired maybe for a couple of years or yeah. just was like, fuck music or whatever. Sure. The things at the Weekly were going good. I sold the real estate advertising, and that was like the peak of the bubble and yeah I had a pretty good love life so it was kind of like uh you didn't have anything <laughs> who the to fuck about. needs this shit <laughs> <laughs> um so then but but then I said then uh, Rodolfo from Old Europa Cafe in Italy sent me an email that he wanted to put out a record and I had some recordings that you know just fooling around and then I I, I did one for him and and I guess it was like yeah it, it got more into I I still like pop songs with kooky lyrics. I mean, so that but the, it was it wasn't all gimmick. That's what I did. But I sort of felt freer, like I could do goofier things in the songs. Or, that's uh, that so brings me to something I wanted to ask you about. Okay. Now, you your songs are seemingly more often or not tell a story. Um, generally, have a central character. Yes. Um, is that conscious? Is that a, a, a song form that you liked in your early days? Yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 uh, I wish my later songs were more like narrative stories because I really, I really do like that form. We just saw Al Stewart a couple weeks ago. And oh, wow. That was uh, up in a winery in New Hope and it was... He's an amazing songwriter. I he mean, is. Um, he is. And a lot of stories with beginnings and endings and middles. And, you know, you have Harry Chapin and on the darker side of things, like a Nick Cave, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, then, you know, there's other songs of mine that are just like these sort of raw outbursts of negative emotions. And then there's mm -hmm. other ones that are kind of sort of stories, but more surreal or <laughs> more influenced maybe by uh, Richard Brodigan or Russell Edson Richard or Brodigan. like that. Just sort of, yeah. I don't know. That's I would never have made that collection connection, but now that you say it, it makes perfect sense that Richard Brodigan. Well, you know, not consciously, but less yeah. sort of, this guy did this to her and then, yeah. you know... Vagina exploded. Yeah, less of that stuff. And Charlotte's more kind of, eye fell out. Right, yeah. 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 Do you, are you a collector of those sort of songs? I see on your piano the Fireside Book of Folk Songs. Oh, <laughs> that's more furniture. Yeah. <laughs> the piano isn't furniture. I mean, no. the piano's been used on the records. But yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 I'm not as educated like uh, my friend uh, Andrew King, this uh, big folk guy in Britain who knows, like... I saw Seems to know every song ever written except... Um, Ruby Tuesday, That's <laughs> and the Rolling Stones. I was, 
driving around with him in Philadelphia, and we drove by the restaurant, and I started, you know, sing, humming Ruby <laughs> Tuesday. He's like, what song is that? <laughs> but he could tell you some, you know, 14th century... I saw him perform at Germ during oh, okay. the French Festival. Oh, great. I guess about a decade ago now. Uh, 2004, probably. Um, 2005. And it was, it was wonderful. I mean, he, he has a gorgeous voice and an encyclopedic knowledge of songs yes. for the past thousand years. And it was, it was fantastic. Now, uh, Classical music, too, he knows a lot about. How did you come to collaborate with Andrew King? Um, I have a friend uh, in Britain, Lloyd James, in a band called Mavis. Yes, who Lloyd, invited Lloyd sings on um, yes one of your records. He sings uh, on um, "Trust in a Scaffold, Build of This Bone," a song called "Closet." Yes, which is really like just get off a really perfect example of like I don't know are these songs about nothing at this point? I mean. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> It's really kind of minimal and... Yes, that song is. I try to create, recreate the spurt of blood with a can of tomato juice <laughs> spilling out. But, you know, I'm uh, working my way through the notebook. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> the international songbook. But, uh... Tomato juice. Um, Lloyd uh, invited me to play in London um, in 2003... And uh, he said, oh, this British folk singer, Andrew King's going to be an opening act, too. And I was, you know, thinking, la dum da dum Sure. <laughs> and and this guy comes out with this martial drumming and this stentorian voice. And I was like, wow, how do we follow that? Yeah. Um, yeah, he's interesting. He's not everyone's cup of tea. But I thoroughly enjoyed him. Uh, would hope to see. It's recorded. I should have loaned you some recordings, or probably. That'd be great. They're you know they're on the, a lot of them on the internet as well. Now, if we're going to talk about collaborations, now, uh, of course, ask you about your most famous collaboration, Roz Williams. Roz, okay. Of Christian Death. How did that come to be? That uh, goes back to the demo tape onslaught. Um, yeah, I would buy stuff like these goth fanzines and there'd be a review of um, Dacus Corota or uh, what's the other group? Uh, Shadow Project. And he would say for information, contact whoever his manager was. So I sent Roz Williams' manager a demo cassette and she used to take all of her demo cassettes, not listen to them, Passed them along to Roz to recycle for recording albums onto. Oh. <laughs> you know, oh. you put the piece of tape over the hole. Uh-huh. And so Roz got mine, and he looked at the titles, like The Dead Hymen and <laughs> Sench Number 7, and thought, oh, I'll give this a listen. So Roz actually heard my stuff. He didn't reach out or anything, but then there was a point where he was going to play in Philly with Jaton Damone, and I was told if I could get them a drum set, I could be the opening act. So I said, sure. And then the promoter went back to Roz and said, oh, yeah, there's going to be an opening act, too. And Roz said, we do not play with opening acts. And uh, the promoter said, oh, it's this local guy, David E. Williams. And Roz said, oh, David E. Williams, I love him. Oh, great. I have his wow. cassette. True happenstance. So it was kind of. Yeah. 
So, uh, yeah, Roz, uh, we opened up for him uh, at the Asylum. I remember this. the Asylum, I, I guess, on the former Delaware oh, Avenue. Yeah, I saw the swans there. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, maybe a year later, they had this idea of bringing Roz to Philly for Halloween, but couldn't pay for anyone but him to travel. So this idea was concocted that Roz and I would do a show together and it would be sort of me and my musicians providing backing band for his performance. And how did that go? <laughs> Does that recording exist anywhere? Oh yeah, yeah. It was made to say, uh, I put it out a couple years later as a live album did you? with Triple X. It went well. It was the only time we played together. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess a year... Uh, wait, October 96. I guess a year and a half later he had hung himself. And then I... I wanted to put this out because I thought it was a good recording and Roz liked it a lot. I mean, I, I you know, a lot of times people die and these posthumous recordings come out and... Right. Who knows if Hendrix wanted that recording of him and Jim Morrison singing Fuck Him in the Ass to be released. I'm almost but, certain <laughs> probably not. But I know Roz liked these songs and these recordings. Uh -huh. So I didn't feel like it was a problem. And I was stupid enough to do the right thing and go to Triple X Records, which was his label. And, you know, I signed a contract with them. I don't know how many they sold, but I only ever got $300 out of it. And obviously, I assume they did not pay Roz's heirs any royalties, so... Mm. That's terrible. Yeah. I but mean... At least the recording got out there, which... Yeah, really you important. know, it sounds kind of petty to bring up the $300. Well, that's, I think that's more of an illustration it, it, of, of the duplicitous nature of the recording <coughs> industry. Though. Yeah, when I was visiting Roz out there... Maybe a year before he died. I remember walking down Hollywood Boulevard and him, like, going by the t-shirt shops. And they'd be loaded with Christian death shirts. He'd be like, where's my cut of that? And some of that is maybe his fault. Well, why don't you go after it? You know? Yeah. Be Christ in the temple. Go in there and tear sure. those Christian death <laughs> shirts off the rack and say, these are not authorized and official. But Now, uh... Getting back to when you came to Philly in 89, what was, how do I put this, I'll just put it this way, what was, if any, a, the scene like that you were walking into? You know, I think of Philly at that time, I think of Blacks and Zipperhead and Bacchanal and South Street. Was there an underground scene? Did you find like-minded um, people? No. no. Um, we ended up doing a lot of uh, hardcore shows, uh -huh. um, both in Philly and in you know Baltimore and DC and things. Um, Frank Blank, who was nice enough to write something nice about me, had me play a birthday party for him at Dobbs. Oh, okay. Which was us and four hardcore bands. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, some of that crowd was kind of open-minded enough to be like, oh, this is. Fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there definitely wasn't, like, a place for me to go. I mean, you know, you, mm -hmm. 
give a demo tape to a club owner and they'd give you a, a Tuesday night and we played a lot of Tuesday nights. Yeah. We did some Sunday afternoons at Dobbs. Kathy James was really nice. Um, and then uh, we started playing with this band called Zen for Primates was around back then. They were like pseudo quasi kind of cabaret-ish. We played with Darren mm-hmm. uh, when he was Hoppy the Frog. <laughs> so that, that like early 90s thing was after the just being hardcore shows. We were spreading out a little. We only played clubs though. Like I have no history of playing any of those West Philly warehouses or anything like that. Sure. Either because again, I don't know if I knew about them or they didn't know about us. And then sort of so at some point, goth happened in Philly. Mm-hmm. It it did it was late, or maybe yeah. it was late everywhere. I don't know. But it was like it, there was like the mid to late nineties. Then I feel like once Digital Ferret opened, maybe it like blew up. Yeah. So I don't even. But you know, we used to play. We played revival a couple times, and that. I guess back then they called it sort of post-punk. Would you play Revival like in the middle, middle of the night when it was thriving, or did you do special shows there? I've played like, I would play like a 2 a.m. there. Yeah. They were like, yeah, they were nighttime gigs. I probably played some early ones too, but it was... Who booked those? Bob Denny. This guy was booked us a couple times. Um, so then we got you know all these goth bills and frankly we didn't really fit in that well there either really you know and I had a few people who liked me and would come out um, but we weren't really you know a couple guys with long hair and sure suits you and Jerome yeah and then we started getting a little bit more cabaret with the accordion player and the Saxophone guy, Ken, and Lou Pepe on accordion. So, yeah, that's kind of the history of that era. Live in Philly was not a lot. And then it seems like years later, when I first started speaking to you, when I had the the website, you had almost, uh, I would call, a residence at Bar Noir for a while. You played there quite frequently. With, uh, like, ADM Rossi. Yeah. I don't know if it was a residence. It, it was... Because uh, uh, I would get invited. They would do these special things where you would go up and play one song or two. But didn't you... You had frequent shows there for a couple of years, did you not? I remember I covered one of them. Well, there was germ, a germ awareness night. Yes. There were two germ awareness nights there um, that I definitely played. I remember the one you covered because I remember your picture mm-hmm. with the blurred. I don't know if it was your review that said I was like some crazed office guy. I don't think that was me. No. Somebody reviewed it (laughs) and said it looked like, you know, your office guy who comes into the office and goes berserk one day. What did you think about that? Uh, It didn't bother me. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, you know, to get back to some of my lyrics, like, huh. I am kind of pompous and can go off on this, but I'm I'm not a very intellectual songwriter. I'm a very, I'm not about, I'm never about ideas. 
And I sort of detest ideas and lyrics because, like, you know, you should be a good songwriter. You shouldn't be a, that great an ideas person. Like, you know, like maybe Neil Peart thinks he is or something. Right. I, I love Rush, but you know what I mean? Like, sure. I, I, I don't, I'm not a philosopher, so I'm not going to write philosophical songs. So I try to capture emotional moments and... You know, back then there was a lot of focus on really horrible emotional moments. So it seems like these are the words of either a real monster or a real poser, but they were actually how I would feel at a certain second or 10 seconds or a minute. And I never, I thought that was good. I thought it was in some weird way. Here we go. Very platonic. (laughs) Like that sort of expression and that capturing of that moment in my emotional life was like a thing that an artist or a writer poetry writer was sort of supposed to do yeah like capture that and what you're supposed to do you know and and and, uh don't censor it and you know don't be expected to and and sort of don't be held responsible later for how you felt those five seconds when you had that feeling and wrote that way and sort of crafted it around more effectively. Agreed. So. Agreed. You mentioned the Germ Awareness Nights. Yes. So you used to have Germ Bookstore. Yes. How did that come to be? Um, it was actually Jennifer Bates, uh, with whom I had a relationship for nine years. Um, she's up there on the mantle. Uh, <laughs> now. Oh, that's great. Um, she was the founder of Germ, and I was sort of the silent partner. And she was uh, quite well-versed in the Germ subjects, which were conspiracy, UFOs, the occult, science fiction. And she got sick and uh, passed away. Mm-hmm. And um, I quit my day job, as it were, and took over the store and much in great um, situation comedy fashion. I was kind of thrown into that role that she had sort of mm-hmm. embraced and wanted for herself. And um, But I, I, on the other hand, I think, uh, I think I fulfilled, actually, posthumously to some degree, her dream of what the store could and should be. We had all kinds of crazy events we had a ufo group that outlived the store by about four or five years same group of people meeting once a month um i attended a church of satan sanctioned art show church of satan sanctioned art show um you know different authors had come in like boyd rice there were some musical concerts uh the uh, apocalyptic folk group changes was there with an art show but also there were like um, performances by um, some people who were kind of like really popular today in certain scenes. Like, uh, I don't know if you know who Pharmacon is. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Pharmacon played at Germ like 2009 something or really early. Um, probably earlier than when she was of drinking age even or something. <laughs> Cult of Youth played there. Um Darren played there, but I mean, a lot of Philly venues can say that. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> um, 
we had an anti-gravity exhibition <coughs> from a group of uh, people into Nikola Tesla. Oh. We actually got this thing to levitate. Wow. It wasn't a magic trick. I saw it. Just some copper wire and some magnets and the thing... If it only gets a half inch off the ground, it's still getting it's off still the ground. It's still levitation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's cool. And then Germ finally closed its doors. Yes. In 2000... Uh, oh, like 2011. 2011? Yes. Okay. Do you miss it? Uh, Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Yeah. Yeah. Like anything. Or... There was, you know, some weird downsides to being a retailer. and Of course. Especially a retailer that was, well, involved with those topics. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, we could call you a specialty retailer. Yeah, but yeah. no, we yeah. were. Yeah. Although, you know, we, we also wanted to be part of the community, and, and I thought sure. we were a pretty good Fishtown bookstore regarding, like, our fiction Absolutely. section and our Absolutely. art books. Uh, we did carry a lot of books, obviously, that other bookstores at the time wouldn't carry. You certainly did. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure I bought Lords of Chaos there. Okay. It's a Moynihan uh, mm -hmm. book. And I'd, I'm sure if I went through my library at home, I bought many others, too. But I do remember, because that, that book had a bit of an impact on me, just the stories that are told in it that I always remembered. I got it at your store. Uh, well, Farrah House, the publisher of that book, mm -hmm. they, they actually did an event at the store with the Sabbath Assembly Band. Oh, yeah? Uh, Process Church-oriented event mm -hmm. that uh, revolved a little bit around a, a book. Sorry, I'm getting a little snotty here from these sulfites. <laughs> but... Um, oh, yeah, the Process Church, uh, you know them with uh, Robert de Grimstone yeah. and yeah. merging Christ and Satan, etc. Yeah. Former Scientologists. Yes. De Grimstone and his wife. Um, so then, following the chronology of, of your records, there was Hope Springs a Turtle, which... I've noticed a trend. You really like puns in your record titles. Yeah, there's been some uh, advice that I should maybe move a little bit away from puns, but no, I would I would say quite the contrary because it's it's now associated with you. Like, oh, okay. Like I would expect all of your records to have titles like that. I'm also good with uh, proper sentences. A lot of them could have periods after them. Yeah. Trust no scaffold built of this bone. Every missing duck is duck missed. They're all sentences. Yes, they are. That's excellent. Yes. Keep that up, too. <laughs> and then eventually you can string them together and call it a, call it a story. Right. Um, I got my verbs in line. Which brings me to my personal favorite record of yours. Mm. Every duck missing is a missing oh. duck. Well, uh, yes. Close enough. <laughs> yeah. I knew I was going to leave something out. Um, which I think is just a monumental achievement. That uh, oh, well, thank from, you. From beginning to end is its own solid piece of art. Oh, thank you very much. Um, before, um, before I talk about it, what, what would you care to say? Uh, I mean, obviously, a lot of the songs were influenced by a really horrible situation with Jennifer dying of cancer. Um, <clears throat> in many ways, I look back on it, and I don't want to like 
color it negatively, but I think it's a little bit too much about my grief and maybe not about what we shared together. Um, well, was but it that's perhaps, how I, was the point of it maybe in hindsight for it to be cathartic? <clears throat> Did you find it helpful writing and recording that record? Uh, I always find it helpful to write and record right. and even just futz around, but yeah, um, yeah, I guess I would have to say that. I, I might not say it as triumphantly as maybe other people have written records like that, but um, cathartic in that, you know, yeah, what is the catharsis and how's that catharsis, to, catharsis constructed? Ugh. But like, you know, if every time you sing those songs, you're going through the whole thing again, too, which is kind of weird to like, you know, part of my life is behind me and then like I drag out those songs to do at a show and you're suddenly for those three minutes kind of living it again. Um, but yeah, a lot of them were sort of written while what was going on, which is a little bit creepy, I guess, maybe. Well, no, uh, well, that's, that's <clears throat> evident. I mean, you really paint a picture of like specific events happening, like you, you yeah. s- you're sitting and watching the cars on the, on the bridge. Um, I, I wondered the song about. Have you been across that bridge? I have not. In the garage out of Penn to. (laughs) No, I have not. It's it's weird because they have the Penn parking garage, and then you walk across that bridge, and then like you're a couple floors away from the cancer ward. And I would cross that bridge at like three a.m. some nights because they had like twenty-four hour access for that ward, and Mm -hmm. you know it's kind of a weird situation where the security guards would start knowing you and. Hey, Dave, how's it going? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good question to ask. Um, the song about Idi Amin. That was, well, that that was written before that. The, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it was an album, so... I had a lot of songs related to that incident in that period of my life, but I also had songs that were maybe written up before and hanging around i was wondering if perhaps it was it was a private joke between the two of you or or it had some connection no it was just an older song Mm -hmm. um it was influenced by some book i bought for 4.99 great dictators (laughs) in history and i took some of the salient points of video means life the ones that would rhyme together and (laughs) there you go that's a song that is and and a good one uh, what it is a showstopper. Was uh, the choice of "Lather" by Jefferson Airplane as a cover on that record? Uh, did that have anything to do with the subject matter of the record? Not a lot, really. I, another thing about uh, that record, which is maybe not related to grief or Jennifer's death or anything, that record was also very influenced by uh, this television show called VH1 Classics. Yeah. Where they'd go in and they'd go in and talk about the recording of these classic records. So, like, you know, they'd go in and... I was What I noted about these records in the 60s was how sort of, like, offhand a lot of the musical decisions were. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like the, the Dylan record where the guy who can't play keyboards plays the organ part. Yeah. You know, or let's try this, let's try that. Like, why? Like, a lot of my earlier albums, in spite of that record being based on such a horrible 
thing as losing a loved one to leukemia. It is actually weirdly a lot less uptight than my other records, and it really represented this sort of like, hey, I'm just going to make, write, and record some songs. So there were some, like, Lather, I always, was one of my favorite songs. One of my favorites by them, too. It's And, and it's such a perfect choice for you to cover now that I think of it, but I wouldn't. It was a it fun to one to learn, too. Yeah. It's it's a waltz. It has, like, a lot of fun kind of changes. It tells a, a not-too-dissimilar story it than tells, one of your Yeah, songs. it's a good story. I had shied away from covers before because I thought, you know... I'm a songwriter, if, and I don't have that great a voice, so if I'm putting out a record, they should really just be fuck my fucking songs. Sure. And, you know, who am I to, like, cover somebody? So that, like, rule was cast aside, like, well, I don't care. This is going to be fun to learn this song and mm -hmm. play it. And, and you also cover Rodgers and Hammerstein's song. On that. Yeah, now that one is obviously more tied in with the theme, kind of like, yeah. you know, in spite of all that happened you would still choose love or not love anyway. Mm -hmm. not, you know. <laughs> and I, I do believe that. I, I lived through it all again. It's still, you know, the positives of that nine-year relationship still, I wouldn't say it made everything worth it, but you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah, I didn't leave, I didn't leave that experience with the idea like, woe is me or, or life sucks. I sort of have a better attitude toward life now than I did maybe before that. That's uh, that's inspiring to hear. Oh, <laughs> thanks. That, that really is. I'm I not mean, sure. It's ever, true. I don't think everybody would have that to say about uh, that experience. Um, probably not. Although I have encountered it at least in literature. You know, mm -hmm. I I read this Joan Didion book about losing her husband, like the year of living magically or something. It was called, and it was, yeah, it was, one hates to use this clinical words, perspective, cause, and it's not an issue of perspective, it's just a matter of uh, appreciation and mm -hmm. holding on to, you know, a lot of people, I, I sort of have a depressive personality if it's not if whether it's clinical or not I don't know but um, I'd say a lot of people who are like that kind of have a bad experience and really focus on it I've kind of learned now that if I'm enjoying life or something nice is happening I recognize it and register it and say oh this is a really good moment and maybe that seems kind of false too but it's better than just focusing on bad stuff like i can't believe this happened again because <laughs> <Yeah>. you know <clears throat> a lot of people will define a bad week as something bad happening on the last day of the week when you know the rest of the week they were with their loved ones they had their their nice dogs <laughs> sure. on the floor drinking wine through a beer mug with an <laughs> old friend right working on a podcast this isn't that bad a moment. So. Not at all. No, this is a pretty good moment. But yeah, <coughs> I dig what you're saying. Um, and the um, significance of the title, if any. Oh, every missing... Well, that's actually sort of a sad story. Uh, um, I'm, I'm sort of a duck-like character with my waddle and my interest in ducks. And uh, 
at one point towards the end uh, um, Jennifer became conscious from being unconscious for a while and said she looked at me and said I'll miss you duck ah. and I blurted out immediately every missing duck is a duck nest <laughs> and well you gotta keep it that's fantastic yeah it's, that's it's true and what is your interest in ducks? Because I see a lot of them in this room. <laughs> it's, there's not a lot of depth to it. They show up in other albums. Yeah, when I was, uh, I was living in this apartment in South Philly in the mid-90s, maybe. And I had a vacuum cleaner, and I didn't have a lot of room or closet space in this apartment, so I had a vacuum cleaner just would sit in the middle of the bedroom, and my mother wanted me to get a, wanted to get a cover for it. And she said... I can get you a cow or a duck. She was ordering them from somewhere. <laughs> and I thought for a moment and I said, I'll take the duck. And that was the first one. That was the first duck, duck number one. Um, Dandy there, there on the piano with the purple pantsuit and bow tie was very early. Got him at the Berlin flea market. Oh. But, I mean, good there's nothing... Yeah, well, no, that's deeper sinister to it. That's like, good. I did not think there was anything sinister. <coughs> Some people do, really. Some people are like, "Is that one of your satanic things with the ducks?" <laughs> yeah, it's just dumb. Um, <laughs> um, and that album was geese followed too. You, you're into geese too. Why not? Sure. Canadian geese are, are actually kind of scary creatures. Yeah, uh, yeah. Where I grew up in Elverson, Pennsylvania, they were everywhere mm. and would routinely chase my brothers around inside the house. Um, this was followed by Trust No Scaffold, scaffold Build of This Bone. In my notes, I have like the first three words of each album oh, title. Oh, that's fine. And your, your album titles are, as you said, proper sentences. Yes. So trust, trust no scaffold. Uh, Be lucky I don't start putting commas into them. Well, we'll see. Um, uh, when I listen the to the next one, I have an exclusive for you. Oh, really? I the tentative for the next one, if there is one, is uh, Operation Gilbreather. Operation Gilbreather. <laughs> With a colon in it? No. Okay. No colon. Because with a colon, that sounds like a, an episode of like Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Like, I don't Operation like Operation in it because there's a, you know, that's overused. So that's like, a, as I said, tentative. All right. Um, trust no scaffold. You seem to be up to your old tricks on that record. Up to my old tricks. Yes. Uh, well, the, the the previous record was was conceptual, whether it was intended or, to yes, or not. There's, of course. It's very thematic, where. It, this one seemed to be, you know, there's some story characters. There's an emperor of ice cream. That's there's, actually a cover. Is it? Yes. Um, well, it's going to be on tape now. I didn't, I, I didn't <laughs> attribute it directly because I didn't want to get caught. <laughs> but, but I do acknowledge uh, Wallace Stevens. It's a Wallace Stevens poem. Oh, okay. So it's it's. I'm sure you're. Safe. I'm sure it's impressive because it's a lot better than like a lot of my, like word for word. It's it's a really great poem. Um, uh, it's a classic poem from the early 20th century. Wallace Stevens was an interesting poet. He was sort of a successful banker 
who wrote poetry in his spare time, but he's sort of viewed as a big deal. He's kind of, I guess that's like a, um, oh, who's the composer from the 1800s? Uh, it's escaping me. Yeah, he's definitely a literary figure. Yeah. 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 So, um, what was recording that record like? What was it like to get back to putting a record out without it being, the subject being grief? Um, well, I guess back up a little bit. So the germ era and post, uh, so on every missing duck was a duck missed along with the loosening up of a lot of former rules I used to keep for myself was also loosening up this idea where I had to kind of write all the parts. Uh huh. So in the interim, there was actually a seven inch single, uh, which I'll give you when you leave. But you out there in loud, fast, <laughs> in loud, fast Philly land, loud, fast Philly land can either listen for free on Bandcamp or buy for five bucks. <laughs> no, my brother, you must buy it. <coughs> but uh, so this was an error after like in between there where I was actually playing with a band. And you know what? Bass player, come up with a bass part. Mm-hmm. Drummer, drum. If you do something stupid, I'll pull you in a little bit. But was that the ensemble? Yeah. Okay. And uh, we were, you know, they did a lot of the songs from Trust on Scaffold live. Jerome Deppy was the guitar player. He's, he's, he's been on everything, right? Yes. Even Trust on Scaffold, where because of some medical problems, he had some problems playing guitar. So he was able to contribute a song with one chord in it, which is another, uh, it's the Relapse, which is a C.S. Lewis poem. Um, but anyway, uh, so I was playing a lot with, uh, these other musicians, uh, this young lady, Adrena Marie, was my violin player. Uh, she's been on a Killers album. She's on their first album. Wow. <laughs> she I grew up in idea. Vegas, so they were like, you know, okay. social, you know, um, so there were some of these kind of recordings with her that were lying around and... And then I just thought, oh, there's enough songs for it to make a new record. So a lot of it was recorded in that whole interim there between, like, 2009 and 2012. And then maybe some point in late 2012, I sort of hammered the rest of them out. Not writing them. They had been written, but I finally, like, you know, I'm going to record these and put it out. So I don't know if that was really an answer to the question. It was. It was. So, um... You exclusively just mentioned that you're working on something? Yes. But again, it's like uh, I'm not a conceptualist and I'm also, for better or worse, not a career musician. So it's a matter of, you know, I don't really sit down to write songs. A lot of times songs will come to me in my head while I'm doing driving or doing some other nonsense work or paying bills or mm-hmm. picking trash up off the sidewalk different things will come into my head and then I rush to a notebook and write them down sometimes in this day and age you're lucky enough to put it into the memo pad in your phone sure, sure. you can even record little memory mel- melodies into your phone these days wow <laughs> what an age we live in <laughs> so yeah I mean I didn't sit down and say I'm writing a new record, but yeah, I guess... 
So our, our, by the very act of writing and recording a new record, I am indeed writing and recording a new record. Have you started recording it? Yes. Okay. I'm uh, close to being like a one-take Charlie these days. That's pretty handy. Like, uh, I kind of record and mix at the same time, which I don't know what that says. I guess it's, I think if parts fit together well, they should be easy to mix. Now, will this be a purely solo record that you're recording on your own? Um, so far, uh, all the tracks are by me, I think. Um... I did uh, have Bane Wolfkin. I don't know if you know who he is. <coughs> Sorry about this coughing stuffy this, but but uh, Bane Wolfkin from Australia. He was a singer in a band called Their Blue Harsh. He's been here a couple times to record, so some of those songs might be on there too. Okay. Um, I think we talked. I'm not really an album conceptualist. Usually, I like albums that are collections of songs, like. Uh, I'm not in this category, but I think the example would be something like the Beatles' Revolver, which I I really like a lot too because it's it's done so well, but it has all these songs in different styles. Yeah, and it's such an argument for the fact that you can do an album where it doesn't have to be this cohesive thing. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and yeah, now that I think about it, that record, is a perfect example of. A collection of a collection of songs that it's not a concept, but you can't imagine those songs not being. Together. That's true. Yeah, that's a yeah. You can't imagine uh, Yellow Submarine being two songs away from Eleanor Rigby. Exactly. Three or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> well, David, it was a pleasure talking to you tonight. Oh, thank you. Is there uh, anything else you need to uh, let the world know or care to mention? No, I really appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> I don't actually, I, I had gone on a no interview thing for a while, but you I'm mentioned. really proud to be part of this project. Uh, Me too. Go Phillies. I, right. You know, I mean, I really like like this idea of this uh, documentary of, uh, I guess, I don't know how, how where the beginning and end is going to be for, you know, if I maybe don't. one, maybe 10 years from now, you'll be interviewing some musician just starting out today in Philly. That would be and cool. Maybe not. I hope ten years from now. <laughs> I hope ten years from now I interview you again. Oh, I hope you're still at work at that time. Oh, well, thank you. Giving us great music. Well, thanks very much. All right, David, I'm signing off for Loud Fast Philly. <laughs>